<laughs> Welcome everybody again to another episode of the Blue Banter Podcast, a podcast that we're striving to introduce the members of the RPCNA to the pastors of the RPCNA and to glean wisdom for young and aspiring pastors from men with ministry experience. I am one of your co-hosts, Joe Smith, pastor of Westminster Reformed Presbyterian Church in Westminster, Colorado. My name is Aaron Murray, the pastor of Marion Reformed Presbyterian Church here in Marion, Indiana. And one of the things that many might know about, if you come up here for Senate at least, but others perhaps do not know, is one of the hidden gems of Marion is a little place called Don's Tap. And Don's Tap is a wonderful little pub owned by one of our members here in the church. And it happens to be one of the uh, biggest evangelistic outreach opportunities that we have a, as a church have. But one of the things that they're famous for is their fried fish and chips. They're quite delicious. And if you don't like fried fish and chips, well, you haven't tried these yet. So next time you're here in Marion, swing on over to Don's Tap and try their fried fish. That's a little free advertisement for you there for Don's Tap. But you didn't come here to hear about fried fish. You came here to hear about uh, fishers of men. You like that, Joseph? I just came up with that just now. It's okay. You can say you, you, can say you like it. Say, say it. Say, say it. Oh, I, I, I like it. Thank you. Thank you. So as Joe mentioned, our podcast here is to try and interview men with pastoral experience. And this week we're in between guests, but we do have one pastor who has some pastoral experience. That is your beloved Joseph Smith, not the Mormon. So Joseph, thank you for being our guest today. My privilege, Mr. Murray. I I believe that it is. I believe that it is. All right. So let's just jump right into the questions. I mean, a lot of people know a lot about you if they've uh, listened to this podcast at all. And anybody who knows you knows this about you. But those who don't know you uh, may not know that you are um, quite the organized and disciplined man. And I remember um, oftentimes stopping by your house at the seminary and you guys had this uh, big old whiteboard. You had your family schedule. You had the chore lists. You had like when you're doing family worship, that kind of thing. And it was always fun for me to kind of erase that and change times and you know draw on that and all that so stuff. So it was but, you? <laughs> yeah, it wasn't your kids. My kids always got in trouble. <laughs> oh, well, uh, apologize to your kids for me. <laughs> uh, but uh, just one of the questions I had for you, and I've got really three of them. Let's just kind of go through them one by one. Is why is it important for the head of the household to run their family well? And I mean, you use a whiteboard and kind of uh, like time blocking things, but um, you, any way that people run their household, why is it important that heads of households run their households well? Yeah. So think about that. I mean, I, I mean, it's a pretty simplistic answer, but I think because God calls us to uh, Ephesians chapter five, Ephesians chapter six, um, Paul paints the husband father as the head of the household and he singles out fathers when he's addressing parents not because ephesians 6 4 doesn't apply to mothers uh, but it's a reminder that the father is the head of the household he bears uh, the ultimate earthly responsibility for how his household runs uh, certainly his wife is his main helper and she is also a manager of the household, um, but but the father and the husband is the head. First uh, Timothy three as well, uh, especially for men who are aspiring to the eldership, uh, ruling your own house well is a qualification for such. And then there's the principle of orderliness from First Corinthians chapter fourteen. Uh, God is a God of order, and we're called to imitate. God and to be orderly uh, in all that we do. 
And order is just one of those things that uh, tends toward uh, well-being and blessing in the home. It's, it doesn't guarantee it. doesn't guarantee it. We know uh, that scriptures tell us that uh, we're to raise up our children in the way that they should go. And when they're old and they leave the home, they will not depart from it. Uh, that's a general principle, not, not a guaranteed promise. Uh, it's something that tends toward children not departing totally nor finally from the faith. And uh, the way I kind of like to illustrate it is with um, eating well and exercising and these things. These are things that tend towards uh, long life and wellness. And yet you could still get hit by a car and die tomorrow, no matter how healthy you eat, how much you exercise. But the point is you're doing something that tends toward uh, wellness and long life. And I think it's the same with order. God's a God of order. He enjoys blessing order and, and we're called to be orderly and to manage our households well. And so the way I like to do that is simply a way of doing it. But, um, I think it's consistent with those biblical principles uh, that I mentioned. Yeah. So, um, what are, I mean, I mentioned the whiteboard, but what are some ways that you kind of run your household and try to, um, seek organization um, with you, with your wife, with your kids? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I just, I try and help my wife uh, think through how she can order her day, uh, give her um, just some tips on how she can organize her tasks for the day, try and help her think through the order of what she does for homeschooling, um, delegate that to her. I don't try and micromanage everything that she does, but I try and be her helper. Um, in that, um, we, we typically have a pretty standard family schedule. When I come home, we usually eat around uh, between five and six, and then there may be a little bit of downtime to where some dishes are done or general conversations are had. And you know, I mean, really, it comes down really in many ways. It just is the whiteboard that you saw. It's 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 having a plan, uh, planning things, a plan uh, from six forty-five to seven forty-five, uh, dad and kid time. Obviously, there are nights that doesn't happen for all sorts of various reasons, um, but but that's the slot for that, and it tends to go that way. Uh, I'll spend time with the kids. And then they'll brush their teeth. And then we do family worship right before they go to bed. And then from 8.15 to 9.15, uh, Allie and I have mom and dad time. And then after that, we pray together and then we go to bed. So that's one of the main ways, really. I mean, it's just that consistent uh, routine schedule and scheduling things in so that even if you don't always get to them or it doesn't go exactly according to and there's still this baseline that is is kind of in a sense being imposed on family life that you're reverting back to uh, constantly that it kind of serves as this center of gravity that's constantly pulling family life back to it and helping to order uh, the life of the family mm -hmm. and, and how is that uh, that practice kind of helped you uh, with your ministry like there's obviously carryover regarding you know time management and discipline uh, but how have you seen uh, the way that you manage your household help you and how you manage the household of God? Yeah. So if I'm not getting at what exactly um, you're, you're pressing at, maybe just ask it again. And I'm afraid maybe I'm not, but um, I mean, I, 
you know, First Timothy three obviously speaks about the analogy between how a man uh, runs his house and and how he runs the church, and so so I think being naturally geared towards that and 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 um, constantly striving towards order and to set up order and systems and schedules in the household uh, that aren't that aren't micromanaging that don't have flex to them. We may, we'll talk about that in, in a bit when it comes to not over overdoing it and idolizing these things, but have some sort of flex to them. I think that just tends over towards uh, life in the church and those principles of time management help organize my time. So I time block things out, but then also when it comes to just serving the church um, I really do strive to be orderly and clear uh, in the way we do things here, uh, all the way from you know having clean and organized spaces to uh, I work with a wonderful session who shares a similar philosophy, but just being clear and having systems set up for how, uh, for instance, we shepherd people. Like I have lists and we have a system of shepherding that we implement. And in many ways, though the shepherding is not mechanical, the implementation of the system is mechanical. You know, certain people are called or texted or emailed this day and this week of this month or so on and so forth. You know, we work through ABC order and how we do head of household visits or how we do annual in-home visits or whatever. And it's not that that's the only way and it's not that it's inflexible if somebody needs uh, to be seen or visited sooner, they can be bumped up. But it's the fact that you've created this system that helps you to be orderly in the way that you shepherd the flock of God. So in many ways, uh, my philosophy of how I work in my home has got brought over and is applied to my own schedule. It's applied uh, certainly with the agreement of the session and maybe modification here or there. But in general, things very much like what I do in the home have been implemented here uh, as far as systems and routines and schedules and, and all that sort of stuff. I don't know if that's 100% what you were getting at. Yeah, but. I mean, the, the, pretty much the, the substance of what I was what I was getting at. Um, kind of the next follow up here, this kind of stems from a conversation that you and I had in seminary, kind of we were going through um, Jonathan Edwards resolutions and everything. And I remember you kind of talking about them um, and kind of a wake up call they were to you, or at least how Edwards um, did or really didn't do some of those resolutions that he had. Um, how do you protect yourself from from the idol of over organization or time management? Because this is something that, uh, you know, you, you work hard to schedule your time. And then as pastors, really as anybody, honestly, you know, things happen, our schedules get interrupted, that kind of thing. So how do you protect yourself from idolizing time management and, and organization. Yeah. Uh, so I think one of the ways is um, understanding your weaknesses. Like not everyone would have this problem, right? Like, um, and so being aware that this is going to be a struggle for you is step one. Uh, step two is prayerfully uh, committing to guard against it. Job speaks about making a covenant with his eyes. Uh, David speaks about committing to not speaking in certain ways in front of ungodly men and so on and so forth. So a commitment against the sin is an important thing. And then again, being aware of and praying against uh, pride, uh, which is going to be the root of this, 
for in most cases, this this over management and desire to control every last second of everything, um, and 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 praying. I, I often pray too against uh, idols uh, that that uh, are inordinate desires, right? Like they're lawful things, they're good things. They're not inherently sinful things, but they're things that you have made an idol of, and thus uh, it, you're you're sinning uh, by by inordinately desiring such things. So I think that's it: awareness, prayer, commitment, and then a principle uh, that that I learned from um, uh, Reagan Rose, who wrote the book "Redeeming the Time." I think it was on his podcast. He talked about. Um, reading reading a guy on time management and stuff like that and the principle he drew the principle from scriptures of of not not uh gleaning and, and reaping to the edges of your field and he applied that to time management so not trying to be overly perfectionist in your time management but creating a schedule uh that has inherent flex to it and being okay and actually being intentional about not uh, scheduling every last minute or every 15 minutes even or something like that. So, so I think that's the, and, and that just really, you know, I mean, I still remember hearing it for the first time. It's kind of like a light bulb moment. Oh yeah, that, uh, that would be helpful. And so doing that and being intentional about not gleaning to the edges of my field in my time management has, has helped also protect against, uh, the the sin of pride and uh, perfectionism in this sense of of making an idol of organization and time management. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I haven't read Regan Rose's book, but his his podcast, Redeeming Productivity, I found really really helpful. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's there's a whole bunch of like um, self improvement, time management, organizational books that you can that you can read. You know, some are better than others, but a lot of them what, what uh, Regan Rose points out is they're not coming from it uh, at it from a biblical worldview. A lot of these guys are kind of Buddhists or uh, humanists, that kind of thing. Um, uh -huh. So, so his podcast is really good. What, what was the name of his book again? It, it was Redeeming Productivity. Okay. I might have said Redeeming Time or something, but it, yeah, it was Redeeming Productivity is the book too. Okay, um, I, I didn't throw this question at you, but um, I'll kind of put you on the spot here. If, if there are those you know heads of households um, who are wanting to kind of grow in their management of their time management of their home what are some maybe basic tips you might give them what are the things that you found helpful and you know it doesn't have to be to husbands or fathers uh, you know we know that lydia um in acts uh, 16 she was the head of household so we've got you know single moms who might be listening that kind of thing so um what, what would be some you know basic startup tips that you might give or things that you found helpful um when you were first getting into this idea of managing your home well managing your time um organizing and just uh seeking to steward what the lord has given you well yeah so i mean i think um uh, one of the things that stuck out to me when i was reading jay adams for the first time in seminary was just his emphasis on planning and scheduling and drawing from the divine example of that. And so one of the things that was convicting to me was, was the importance of scheduling time for my kids and for my wife and, and putting that on a schedule, just like I would put anything else on a schedule. Like I said, schedules sometimes get changed. Sometimes they don't, they don't lock up, but it should be a very important event 
and it should so therefore it should be something that you're willing to say no i've got something scheduled during that time i can't talk to you or i can't go here or there most of the time um and so so i think you know scheduling that time if if you're a husband scheduling it with your wife if uh, scheduling it with your children if you're a single mother schedule schedule time to where you're going to play with your kids or or whatever it is so so planning and scheduling are really in in many ways what it comes down to and then praying for the strength to actually implement and stick with that schedule but you have to plan and you have to schedule if not it's highly unlikely that you're going to bring order to your life there may be some degree of order but it's not going to be a high degree of order likely and then one thing uh, again i got this from reagan rose but turned around and and gave him the credit but shared it with my congregation uh, as an application of a redeeming the time sermon from ephesians 5 there and it was his power morning routine so when it comes to redeeming the time bringing order to your day your day to day uh, he has this power acronym which is a morning routine stands for prayer organization word exercise and read so and it doesn't really matter which order you do these those things in the acronym is just a help but so so you want to be reading a little bit from the scriptures every day you want to be praying about what you just read you want to read another book, uh, could be whatever, could be something theological, could be something fiction, whatever. And, and you want to do some short, at least, amount of exercise just to get the body moving and the blood pumping and so on and so forth. But that last one, organization, is critical for ordering your day. You're, you're not letting your day happen to you, but you're happening to your day. You're ordering your day. And so what I try and recommend for people is at least one to two tasks put put on a task that you're going to accomplish these this day and and knock those out again that helps you it helps you say no to things it helps you not to procrastinate so often we procrastinate during the day because we're not clear on what the next step is if we know what the next step is we are less likely to procrastinate because we know what's next <laughs> we move on to it and so th those would be kind of Two tips, really. I, I mean, I really think it's pretty simple. Plan and schedule, especially main events, and I think do so in big blocks. Um, big blocks, especially uh, if if you're working or or you're you're a mom or whatever, and your your day with your kids is your work. Uh, you know, you've heard it said, probably divide your day into threes. Uh, if you're able, give the first part to God and then to your work, your main work, whatever that is, and then the evenings to your family. So as a, as a stay-at-home mom, maybe you come back, dad comes back in the evening, and so now the whole family is together. So that's that family time. So kind of that overarching block of time versus, again, trying to schedule every 15 minutes, but some sort of planning, some sort of scheduling, and then and then some sort of morning routine, which includes some sort of forward task planning for that, for that day. Mm -hmm. Now I know you use the, the whiteboard when you're kind of putting together your own organizational schedule or whatever. Are you a pat and pen kind of guy? Do you like uh, any types of programs that you like to use any apps? Yeah. So both um, I've got an iPhone, so I just use their standard uh, reminders app 
for task management. And this is something I think from Tim Challey's book on doing doing more better or something like that. Mm-hmm. He kind of talks about three organizational tools. You need a task manager, an event planner, and then some sort of notepad type deal. So I just use those three apps on my phone, the iPhone apps, reminders, calendar, and notes, and things that are nouns go in the calendar. So events, meetings, whatever, and things that are verbs, things that you do go in the task manager and the reminders app. And then for notes, you can take notes about whatever, jot, jot things down. But what I'll do each day is I do have, uh, I won't put it up on the screen because nobody's going to be able to see it here, but <laughs> I've got, I've got a pad of paper where I will look at my reminders for that day. And then I will take those and I will organize them. I'll write them down. I'll write down each hour of the day. And then I draw time blocks through those hours and I'll write down what I'm going to do during that time. So it's kind of this final edition of the day, if you will, kind of the rough draft is just plugging things into my reminders app. And then the final draft for any given day is on pen and paper. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's good. You mentioned uh, kind of reading and that kind of segues pretty nicely into the next question. Um, you know, other than the commentaries that you're reading and things um, for your sermon prep, what, what books are you are you currently reading? Yeah, so, I mean, currently right now, you and I are obviously, we're taking a, a class on the Trinity, so we're, we're reading books on the Trinity. Right now uh, includes uh, WGT Shedd, Francis Turretin, Peter Van Maastricht, and Matthew Barrett uh, on, on the Trinity. So that's taken up much of my reading right now. But before I hit pause for that, or what, I, what I'm normally reading right now, my normal plan that I have, is uh, I'll tell you in just a minute, I remember also something I took from seminary when we read John Stott's book, uh, Between Two Worlds. He talked about a pastoral reading plan. Mm-hmm. And the the ideal he put forth was one hour per day, one day per month, one week per year. Now, season of life, I'm in with the little kids and stuff like that. You're in one week per year is, is, is not as feasible. But I have been and I do do uh, the vast majority of the time, one hour per day, one day per month, completely devoted to um, extra reading outside of sermon pep prep. And so normally that one hour per day, I have divided right into between doctrine and life. So 30 minutes of doctrinal books, a doctrinal book, and then 30 minutes of a book on various aspects of life. And, and then I have that even parsed out. So Tuesday, I read Systematic Theology, uh, reading through uh, Burkhoff right now. Wednesday, I do Biblical Theology. I'm reading Lane Tipton's book, The Foundations of Covenant Theology. Thursday, I do Historical Theology. I'm reading Burkhoff's History of Christian Doctrine. Friday, I do Evangelism and Apologetics. And I've started reading uh, Greg Bonson's recently released uh, three-volume set. Uh, that came out on apologetics. And then for life, um, Monday is kind of the day I try and read some fiction and so, uh, or, or just a personal interest book, uh, since that's my day off, but still trying to do a short amount of reading what, in the uh, morning. What, what fiction book are you reading? Well, that's what I was going to, uh, Pilgrim's Progress right now, but I got oh a guy my here. Word. Hey. Oh, my word. What are you? Oh, my wording. That book is oh great. My, yeah, I'm not saying that it's not. It's a fantastic book. It's a wonderful book. Everyone should read it. I just, you know, it just tracks. Like, you're not, 
really steering away from theology in your fiction reading. Now, hold on, you know? let me let me talk. I was <laughs> okay, getting ready right. to talk until okay, you cut right. me off. I'm I'm sorry. I'm just interviewing so, you here. I'm just trying so to follow up questions. That's I, all. I own mm-hmm. three fiction books right now. Oh, you own three, three whole fiction books. And one of them was just recently given to me by a member of the congregation. So here's my point. I was talking to a member of our congregation, and he helped convince me, along with our interview with Nathan Eshelman, that I probably should be reading more fiction. Mm -hmm. Okay? And then this member of our congregation, uh, his name's Russ, he gave me a list of good fiction books to read for pastors. And they're Mm -hmm. not all uh, theological-based. Well... Until I get uh, some money in the book budget back here, I'm kind of I've got what I've got right now, and so I am reading what I have. That is Pilgrim's Progress, and after that, I'll read The Holy War, and that's what we'll do. And then next year, probably by that time, um, then I'll start filling up my my fiction reservoir, mm-hmm. and and I'll expand beyond okay. Pilgrim's uh, Progress. Have you heard of uh, Libby? Yes. So, I mean, you can you can get books from the library for free. You don't have yeah. to spend money. I'm just I'm just saying. That. And also, thanks, also, thanks, I'm Mr. a little Burr. I'm a little offended that it's taken Nathan Eshelman and this gentleman Russ to get you to read fiction. And I've been you know pushing that for some time, but it's fine. That's fine. So Mondays you read Pilgrim's Progress. <laughs> yeah, um, and then Tuesday. Pastoral theology. I'm rereading uh, Al Martin's book on pastoral theology that David Whitler had us read in seminary. And Wednesday, I read on a, a preaching book. I'm reading John Carrick's book, The Imperative of Preaching. Right now, uh, Thursday is a counseling book. I'm reading Jay Adams' How to Help People Change. And then Friday, I'm reading a, uh, I usually like to read a Puritan paperback or something like that. I'm reading Thomas Goodwin's The Heart of Christ uh, at the moment. And then Saturdays, I try and read from uh, from our Constitution. So could be from the Confession, Testimony, Catechism, Directory of Church Government, Public Worship, Book of Discipline, uh, whatever. But on Saturdays, I read from the Constitution. Yeah, it's, it's fun reading, looking at all the procedures and how to conduct an election and all that. Really, really exciting and um, stimulating <laughs> stuff. Yeah, so I, I think our listeners are probably getting this. When I said that you're you're an organized guy, uh, clearly you are with uh, how organized you've got your reading schedule set up. Um, when it comes to maybe some of the most influential books you've read, maybe they're ones that you're reading now or ones that you've read in the past. What you know, you just think of three. Maybe what are some of the top three most influential books that that you've read? I would say fiction um, or otherwise, but but I know it's not fiction. Um, yeah. I mean, probably um, Timothy Whitmer's The Shepherd Leader, uh, just the influence that it's had on my own thinking uh, per shepherding and what we do here at Westminster. Uh, it's probably the most influential book if you take into consideration what we do here. Um, probably after that, maybe um, maybe Burkhoff systematic theology i think you and i both have developed a love for burkoff and just uh, uh how helpful that's been and then after that it would kind of be a real toss-up between some of the books that keith evans had us read in 
the various counseling classes, the peacemaking pastor mm-hmm. would probably would probably be up there pretty high, and uh, the focus there on reconciliation within the church. Um, Adam's also more than redemption, and the biblical theology of counseling was pretty pretty influential as well. Um, you know, it's fascinating it's, about your answer here is that all of those books are books that uh, we had to read in seminary, with the exception of Burke. I mean, Burkhoff, we had like selections that we had to read. Right. Um, maybe I'll throw you a, a curveball here. What about maybe books that you read before seminary? Hmm. Well, I mean, most of them would have been seminary related. I wasn't much of a reader, to be honest with you. Like, I mean, I was converted in late 2016, mm-hmm. came in the RP Church 2017, and started an internship in 2018, which started to be geared towards seminary <laughs> type stuff and theological reading. So I don't have much of like a priest seminary <laughs> reading history, to be honest. I mean, I literally didn't read anything. I mean, I'm sure if I sat here on the spot, I don't want to waste time though and, and racked my brain and thought about um thought about those things. I mean, certainly <clears throat> I mean they came to me through video lectures though I later read the book, uh Sproul's What is Reformed Theology, uh which is also in book form. Mm-hmm. So, though I watched the lectures and later read portions of the book having having bought it, maybe that I could say, um, but yeah, other than that, I literally, literally didn't read sure. before I was converted. Hey, fair enough. Fair enough. So I, I got a fiction book for you. Maybe, maybe uh, you've heard me talk about this before, but uh, this is this is probably one of my favorites, at least currently. And it's a book by Brandon Sanderson called The Way of Kings. So it's the first of what will be uh, 10 novels. It's a fantasy genre. It's it's fantastic. Um, you'll, you'll love it. I promise. I was, I was thinking about buying it for you for your birthday, but you know, you don't read fiction. So I was like, eh, I'm not gonna waste my money. Well, by next, by my next birthday, I, I will be. So there you can buy it. Okay. All right. Well for your next birthday, I'll send it to you through Amazon and, uh, I can't wait to talk about it with you. So yeah. Way of Kings by Brandon Sanderson. Fantastic book. Okay. Enough. Let's, uh, let's transition here. We're going to uh, go to our, our preaching question. And uh, before we get into it, uh, we got another email from a listener and I'm going to, I'm going to keep his name anonymous. Um, not because of anything that he said. I just uh, want to protect him a little bit. Um, but one of the things that he talked about and he was expressing was um, a slight level of frustration when it comes to reformed preaching, um, when it comes to like a gospel proclamation or a gospel call. One of the things that uh, we tend to avoid would be things like altar calls. And I don't think this uh, listener, he certainly wasn't suggesting that. But because of our kind of disassociation with the altar calls, sometimes our gospel presentations and our sermons, um, either they can be small or they can be non-existent, or we can just limit them to whenever we're actually giving an evangelistic sermon. So kind of just bear that in mind as I ask this question. We we ask all of our guests this, but I'm going to ask you particularly, what is your philosophy of preaching? And then I'll just give you kind of my sub-questions along with that, and you can answer it however you like. So as you think about your philosophy of preaching, uh, how important is the law-gospel distinction in preaching? And, and what are ways that you try to call your congregation to faith and repentance in your weekly preaching? And should a gospel presentation be normative for each sermon preached? So you can answer that in whatever order you'd like. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll answer it. But then if I if I forget to touch on one of them, draw me back to it because mm -hmm. I've got I've got thoughts on I, any of those. Mm -hmm. So briefly, and I'll try and try and blow through this. But I love I love talking about preaching, and so um, I could sit here and, and ramble on forever. But uh, I, I I love uh, as far as the philosophy of preaching. What is preaching? In some ways, I love Lloyd Jones uh, on preaching that it's theology coming through a man who is on fire or it is theology on fire and i love lloyd jones emphasis of of the work of the holy spirit in preaching it's it's an event and an exercise that is absolutely dependent on the work of the holy spirit uh, before during and after to bless and to work with that seed uh, of the word that is sown so when it comes to my philosophy of preaching, uh, I'm about to say three things that are all of the same thing. They're just saying it from a different perspective. So I want, I want first, I want my preaching to be, uh, and, I'll, and I'll say what these mean in a second, I want it to be purposeful, expository, experimental, evangelistic, and practical. By purposeful, I mean what Jay Adams means. I want it to align with the purpose of the text. I want to ask myself the question, why did the Holy Spirit give us this passage? And I want to answer that question, and I want my sermon and the uses that I bring out to align with that overarching use and purpose. When I say expository, I mean specifically explanatory. I want to explain the meaning of the passage. I want it to be experimental, and primarily what I mean when I say experimental is I want it to be a discriminatory preaching that calls people to examine themselves and that discriminates between the three major categories of listeners, which are believers, unbelievers, and then the middle category who are hypocrites, professing believers, but not actually so. When I say evangelistic, I mean that I want to call people to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and to present uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when I say practical, I mean I want to counsel from the pulpit. I want to give actual how-to when I'm able. Uh, Adams calls it implementation. I want to help people implement this biblical principle, whatever it may be, into their lives and, and to help them to do that. Uh, from another angle, I think of four C's when hey, it comes Can I, can I pause to, here just for a second just so we can kind of camp in on the, those those five things that you, that you talked about uh, that we don't sure. get lost in it? So when it comes to the discriminatory nature of preaching, um, you kind of gave three broad categories. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, when you're writing a sermon, do you have those three categories in front of you? And then even in those three, there's there's subcategories, right? So just take the, the Christian, for example. Like you've got you've got the believer. Um, so you've got someone who maybe is strong in the faith and they just it's it's a refresher. Um, it, it's something that they need to hear, though they may not necessarily be struggling with a particular issue that you're preaching about you've also got believers who are um they're downtrodden they're burdened by uh maybe life circumstances or maybe they're burdened by their own guilt you've got believers who are straying um so you've got these subcategories so do you do you have kind of a, a list like a discriminatory list of categories that you're trying to hit even within those subcategories um that you have does that make sense 
Yeah, I do have such a list. I have a sheet here. Um, well, I don't have it. It's in my it's in my desk here. I have a sheet that has like a lot of these things laid out on it, like the questions I want to ask mm-hmm. about a passage, so on and so forth. And within listeners, I do have those three main categories and then a lot of subcategories. Like you said, uh, William Perkins is helpful on this and others of the sad subcategories of listeners. But I mean, I have those three main categories just so ingrained in my head that those are naturally being spoken to. And then kind of within that, I want to let the text then drive what is said. Um, so I don't want to, uh, you know, sermons could, could get, we know we joke, I preach for a long time sometimes, but that, I mean, you could just get out of control by trying to hit every right. single one of these subcategories mm-hmm. each time. So it's kind of what, you know, uh, you know, I just preached through uh, Ruth 1, 6 through 22, and that has something to say. I think Naomi is a believer in that passage, but she's a bitter and a mm-hmm. struggling and a destitute believer. And so that has something to say to that kind of believer. Uh, uh, Orpah has something to say to a hypocrite who's, who is on the way from Moab to Judah for a time and turns back to her gods. And Ruth has something to say to the lively uh, the vital believer in her confession of faith and her strength and her clinging to Naomi and not wanting to hear, you know, this temptation to turn back to her God, so on and so forth. So just, and, and those would be the one, the specifics I would address and how I would address them within those three major categories. So I try and let the text drive as much as possible. The subcategory mm-hmm. addresses. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's helpful. Thank you. All right. You got uh, yep. four C's. Yep, four C's. And again, this is saying the same thing. So let's think of Revelation here. Kind of we're coming at this recapitulation from a different angle. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to convince, I want to convict, I want to convert, and I want to comfort. Uh, I want to convince, convict, convert, and comfort. And then the final angle, uh, I think a sermon should consist of uh, the what, the so what, the now what, and the how-to, and those basically align with the what is explanation, so what application, now what exhortation, and how-to implementation. Um, and so so those would be kind of the, the major things I'm thinking through of what I want a sermon to do and what I want to do in preaching in general. And then how I typically do that, how that lines out, how that plays out in my actual preaching uh, you know, I'm not a, a one-point guy. I'm not a three-point guy or anything like that. I literally just preach through a passage, verse by verse, generally word by word or phrase by phrase, in the exact order in which it comes to us uh, in the Word. Now, mm-hmm. I, I do uh, I do make a sheet uh, for the sermon each week that will have some kind of main points or themes or definitions or whatever on it. So there is a general people are able to see the flow of thought, but the actual movement is not is not driving to a main point necessarily. Uh, it's not it's not subsuming everything under three headings. It's follow along in your Bible. We're going to explain and apply and implement the Bible. So verse by verse in the exact order uh, that it comes to us. And 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 I'm heavy on explanation. I want to thoroughly explain. The passage, and uh, you know, I was told one time in a in a presbytery exam that uh, you're supposed to just bring people out the finished dish. Don't take them uh, back into the kitchen with you. 
And and I didn't agree with that at the time, though right. I kept explain, my mouth explain shut. what that means. I mean, I know what you mean, but kind of explain what Yeah, so so that that you just need to bring out to people the fruits of your exposition. You don't need to take them back into the kitchen and show them how you came to the conclusion, how you made the dish that you're showing them, all the exeges all the exegesis and 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 logical thought and so on and so forth. You just bring to them uh, the final product and and go with it from there is essentially what this mm -hmm. person said. And uh, I just love what J.W. Alexander in his book Thoughts on Preaching had to say about that. Um, he talks about, he says, the mental habits of any Christian community are mainly derived from the preaching which they hear. And he says, where the laity are not expected to search the scriptures or in any degree to exercise private judgment, it may answer every purpose to give them from the pulpit the mere results of exposition. But more is needed where we claim for all the privilege of trying every doctrine by the word of God, and sermons should therefore be auxiliaries to the hearers in their investigation of the record. And R.L. Dabney states that a prime object of pastoral teaching is to teach the people how to read the Bible for themselves. He should exhibit before them in actual use the methods by which the legitimate meaning is to be evolved. And so both of those men would disagree, I think rightly, with the fact that you are merely to bring the results of exposition or to merely bring uh, the finished dish to the people, but you need to convince their mind. You need to walk them through. It doesn't have to be all of the details or, or the sermon. You don't want to turn into an exegetical commentary, but you want to persuade them. How did you come to this understanding of the passage and walk your people through that so that their minds are convinced? Because when the mind is convinced, it's more likely to sink down into the heart. It's more likely to have lasting effect. And the explanation of the word of God provides the weight and the freight for the application. Because if I first got to your mind and convinced you that this is, in fact, what God's word says, now the application has more weight behind it. And it's likely to have lasting weight behind it. So I'll speak about what words mean. What do these words mean in connection, i.e., what is the grammar if it's relevant, and how does this help us? And we want to cross-reference passages and spend some time doing that, and then we will move on uh, to the application of the Word of God, and then you move on to address the people, and you can do that through exhortation, you know, commands from the Word of God to believe, to repent, to do this or that. And then uh, based on God's word, and as far as discrimination, uh, probably the most helpful thing is what John Carrick refers to as the searching question. You know, is this sin yours? How are you doing in this or that? Where do you stand uh, with Jesus Christ? So on and so forth. And then, uh, and then in passages where it's going to be helpful, especially, you want to give implementation. So that would come... Uh, later at that point, helping the people to implement the passage. And then I, I most of the time end every sermon with a presentation of the gospel 
and an exhortation to repent and believe that gospel. It could happen earlier in the sermon. Sometimes it does. But generally at the end, and not in some mechanical or choppy way, I try not to. Um, but but how is this flow in to the gospel? And, and, and uh, so there's a presentation of the gospel in every single sermon I've preached at Westminster. And there is a call to believe it. And um, so that kind of answers the last sub-question there. Yeah, should there be this present? I mean, let's kind of a, talk a little bit about it. Because I, I think I'm somewhat on the same page as you are. Um, though I might phrase it this way. I think uh, you give them the meal and perhaps the recipe, but you don't bring them back into the kitchen, right? So if we're just using those illustrations, right? So when it comes to like um, Greek, we've all listened to sermons where, you know, I mean, MacArthur actually does this really, really well, where he goes into the Greek and he actually does it um, better than I think anybody else does. But sometimes, you know, we spend so much time talking about the Greek that we kind of eat up our sermon time and we're not really expositing the text so much. Um, so you kind of start focusing on the moss, you lose sight of the trees. So when it comes to like that that kind of thing, my my philosophy of when it comes to the original languages, at least, is only using the Greek when there's a an English word that sounds similar. So you think of like a preeminence, that's where we get the word prototype in Greek or a prototypione. I'm making that up. I don't know, but it's close to the same. So when you're, when you're talking about taking people back into the kitchen, you know, you're, you're quoting uh, these other guys, how much of that are you doing? Yeah. I don't think I'm doing uh, um, a ton. I mean, I do think it's super helpful. Yeah. Almost any time where there's a Greek word that, that, sounds like an English word, I will almost always point that out. Anytime I'm defining a word, it's from the Greek word. Um, and so so that's what I'm defining. But I will talk about grammar and um, tenses of verbs and the relationship of Greek participles mm-hmm. to main verbs. I don't sit there and camp out on it forever. I'll explain it. And, and the thing is, if you do that a little bit here and there, over time in most sermons when it's appropriate. And if you're exegeting from the original languages, it's probably going to, you're going to see where it's appropriate or helpful mm-hmm. more often than not, you know, uh, people in my congregation should know probably what a Greek participle is an ING word. And that most of the time when it follows a main verb command, it's a participle of means. It's telling you how to do the main command. That's helpful. Mm-hmm. That was a help to me. I remember, I think it's a, I forget the dude's name, but does the book CJ had us read on Old Testament exegesis and sermon prep and his kind of his rule of thumb in there. If something from the original languages was like very helpful to you mm-hmm. in clarifying the meaning of the text, it's likely to be helpful to others. And our people aren't dumb. They're not dumb. Now, that doesn't mean everything in the sermon is going to hit everybody. We're preaching to a wide audience. And, and so some stuff's going to go over people's heads, but that's just necessary. If you're going to be able to feed the high level and still feed the children, there's going to be things that are very simplistic to some and over the heads of others. That's just part of it. But uh, part of it, too, is bringing people up, teaching them things they don't know. They're not dumb. Uh, it's basic grammar. It's not some alien language. I mean, we, we get these things. There's a logic to grammar so people understand it. And if it's explained well, 
They can see, explained well and concisely, they can see why it's helpful and it adds to the persuasion. So if it was helpful to me, it doesn't matter if it was in the kitchen, in the writing of my recipe, or in the finished product, I frankly don't care. If it's helpful to me, I'm going to share it. Mm-hmm. So in, Most your dis- of the time. in your discriminatory preaching, you don't preach to stupid people. No. <laughs> All right. Um, good. I, I, I love it. So let's kind of move on to some of these other uh, sub questions. Uh, and these were asked again by um, a listener of ours. And I, I think they're they're really helpful questions, which is why I thought it would be good for us to kind of chat about them. And these will probably be reoccurring as we interview some of our guests. So when you think about um, the law gospel distinction, you can answer that however you want. There's there's numerous ways of viewing law gospel. Um, h- how much of law and gospel do you insert into your sermons um, and then what are ways that you try to call your congregation to faith and repentance? So, you know, we've got the gospel call and so we can, we can follow like a very formulaic way of doing it. Um, or are there other ways that you try to highlight maybe the different facets of the diamond of the gospel in your preaching? You follow? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, like we kind of talked about right before, like people can mean all sorts of different things by law and gospel. They could Mm -hmm. be referring to the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. They could be referring to the old covenant and to the new covenant. They could be referring to the relationship between the indicative and the imperative. They could be referring to the overarching structure of a sermon that it should follow a two point law and then gospel structure. So um, I try and preach the text Whatever it is, um, whether that's predominantly indicative or predominantly imperative, but like in John Carrick's book on um, imperative preaching and sacred rhetoric, you know, there's there's this relationship in the scriptures between the indicative and the imperative, and it's always that the imperative is rooted in the indicative, that mm-hmm. the indicative grounds the imperative. So that's just kind of how I'm thinking about this question. I don't say it every single sermon, but I try and remind my congregation that all of the gospel imperatives, and, and they are never calls to be all that you can be. They are calls to be who you already are in Jesus Christ. Do not lie, mm-hmm. because in Christ you're not a liar. Because the old man who was a liar has been crucified. Now, yes, we still wrestle with indwelling sin, but the principle is, in, in, in our union with Christ, what's true of Christ is, in principle, true of us. So we're not a liar. So don't lie. Uh, rely on the Spirit, but strive not to lie. Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Uh, everything's rooted in the Spirit, but as our confession says, we don't just sit back and expect the Spirit just to erase our lying by not doing anything so you pray and do you do and pray in the power of the holy spirit you stir up uh, the spirit within you that's what our confession says so i think just trying to be clear on the relationship of the indicative and the imperative and, and the sermons again i just want to preach the text and so there may be sermons where there's less of the indicative and more of the imperative uh, i'm doing that right now in ephesians the whole first half is a lot of indicative and and that was the vast majority of the sermons and the second has been a lot of imperative, or, or at least applications of the indicative, but you never want to lose sight of one or just preach something without the other. But the ratio, I think, of the indicative and the imperative in their presence ratio-wise in any given sermon should be determined by the text. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, you know, Paul's Romans was three-quarters indicative, a quarter imperative. Ephesians is half and half. Hebrews and First Peter are like both and all throughout. So, you know, let the text 
do it. Um, but, but you can't ever preach the one without the other. I think that's the point of the biblical relationship of the law and the gospel. Um, so, uh, of course, everyone who reformed should not be preaching works-based salvation. So as far as that law and gospel distinction goes, of course, we're gospel covenant of grace-centered people. But um, I think the rest of it is just making sure that you don't lose sight of the indicative when you're preaching the imperative, and you don't lose sight of the imperative when you're preaching the indicative, and then let the text control the ratio. Mm-hmm. Well, very good. I think, um, uh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go on. Well, I was just going to move us on to the next question. I think you, yep, you pretty it. much answered everything. Um, Joseph is very passionate about preaching in case uh, the listeners can't tell. I love it. Well, one, one, one more thing real quick to, to right. the listener that wrote to us. Mm-hmm. Um, just like why, why should every sermon include a presentation of the gospel and a call to believe the gospel? And I think that flows from our doctrine of the visible and the invisible church mm-hmm. and the doctrine of the wheat and the tares. Okay, and so there are people we are naive to think, and we ought not ever presume uh, the 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 heart status of any of our listeners. We're to call people to believe the gospel. We're to present the marks of a born again Christian, so on and so forth. So that's why it needs to happen. You also you never know when a visitor might be coming into your church, and uh, believers need it constantly being reminded of of that which Paul says is of first importance, uh, which is the the death, uh, sufferings, death, and resurrection of Christ. And so so that's why, um, because we're not only preaching to believers, at least if we ever have, we didn't know it. Mm-hmm. We didn't know it. Yeah, I think I think the listener agrees with that. I think the listener thinks, or from what I'm understanding about his email, I don't have it in front of me, um, but I think his, his opinion and his perspective is that the gospel should be preached every single sermon, at least in, in some, in some way, shape or form. So I don't think he was asking, you know, why should we, because he's not convinced that we should, but more, um, why aren't we, I think maybe was the spirit of, of his question. Um, I'd have okay, to go back I, and, and, email. but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And maybe I misread one of your questions. I thought one of the sub questions was, should there be, or why, or something like that. But, um, either way let's let, yeah, let's get on. So we don't do this episode forever onto the, no, I'm, I'm having is. a great time. I hope you are. <laughs> I, hope, I hope your blood pressure is not too high, you know? No, no. Okay. So um, we're kind of going to stick with the, the theme of preaching, but we're going to shift perspectives a little bit. So rather than what, when it comes to like the mechanics of preaching and kind of your philosophy of preaching, if, if one of your uh, members of the church came and they asked, you know, how should I listen to a sermon? How would you answer that question? So how, how should our members listen to the sermons that are preached at their congregation so like what what should they be doing beforehand during and then after the sermon is preached so i'm going to read westminster larger catechism 160 and then i'll unpack the before during and after uh because our catechism gives us the answer from the scriptures question 160 what is required of those that hear the word preached answer it is required of those that hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer, so that they attend to the preaching, like that they actually come. Um, And then that they examine what they hear by the scriptures, receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the word of God, meditate and confer of it, hide it in their hearts, and bring forth the fruit of it 
in their lives. Mm -hmm. So now let's follow your outline of before, during, and after. So what's helpful to do before the hearing of a sermon, and this is, should be part of our ordinary preparation, although all of this, keeping in mind, certainly we're all sinners. This is all easier said than done. Life happens. We get all that. But yeah, you're, you're speaking do, ideally. Yeah, we, we need to strive after the ideal. Without an ideal, we're, we're just lost. And so ideally, we need to, as much as possible, set our ordinary business aside. Uh, we need to, um, and, and that, that kind of is, is two things. We need to do as much as we can Tuesday through Saturday so that things are accomplished, so we're not worrying about what was not done, but then praying that we won't have our minds consumed with the next week ahead what needs to be done. So caring as much as we can for our ordinary business so that we're not stressed out as we're coming to the house of God to hear, hear the word. Also, if, if you know the text that is going to be preached, uh, you know what your pastor's preaching through and or a bulletin uh, information is set out beforehand, it's good to read that text and to ponder it and to think over it yourself and to think through uh, applications uh, of, of how that applies. Um, and, and that way, that, that's, it's, it's in your heart already. There's been some meditation happen so that the first time you hear the preaching text isn't when the pastor reads it out loud to you. And then you need to pray. You need to pray for the preaching of the word of God. Pray for your pastor. Pray that the spirit would work through the preached word and pray for your own heart and for the hearts of those who are going to hear that word, that the spirit would bless it and bless it abundantly according to his perfect wisdom. And then you need to come. You, need, you have to come. That's what it's that you need to attend upon the word. When there's a call to worship and the preaching of God's word is going to happen and you're going to be addressed from it, you need to come to it. So that's kind of the before. And what about during the preaching of the word? Uh, well, you need to focus. You need to strive to focus. And again, we know that we're fallen sinners, that we have limited attention spans, that the kids need something. That the pastor says something and that causes our mind to go here or there or that we're struggling. That like, okay, we know that's going to happen, but we need to be praying short little Nehemiah style prayers. Lord, bring my mind back. Lord, give me focus. Um, and, and then however that helps you. Uh, if you've never taken notes in a sermon before, maybe you and you have trouble paying attention. Try taking notes of the sermon and, and follow along with what the pastor's saying. But if you listen best without taking notes, then don't take notes. But try and learn yourself with a little trial and error what, what best aids your focus during the preaching of the word. Also, no unnecessary uh, talking or anything like that. Don't be leaning over and whispering things and giggling and talking about things that have nothing to do with the preaching of God's word. Uh, that's, that's how can you focus when you're leaned over talking to someone, uh, especially mainly about things that have nothing to do uh, with, with the sermon during that. Um, and then as you're listening to the sermon, um, you, you sh as you grow in biblical knowledge, you can be examining um not in some uber skeptical way, but in a Berean sense, what the pastor is saying as he's preaching it. Is this, in fact, the truth of the word of God? And if, and if you don't 
know or you have questions in the moment, kind of what I would recommend is not necessarily zoning out of the preaching. Again, I know this happens and whatever, but don't zone out of the preaching and go study your Bible then. Jot it down, engage back with the preaching of the Word of God, and then after the sermon, either go talk to the pastor or go home and study that for yourself to see if indeed what he said is in fact the truth of the Word of God. Yeah, and real so, quick, I mean, that that might lend uh, credibility to bringing people back into the kitchen. You know, you show people in mathematics, you show your work and you get to an answer. So that might be helpful when it comes to um, particularly challenging passages. Um, so maybe you're kind of cutting that off uh, before it even begins, some of the questions and stuff. But yeah, c- absolutely. Continue. continue. Absolutely. Um, you're trying to convince people. Why? Because you want them to receive it as the truth in the moment. And if you just tell them what that means, they okay, wow, that's that's one option amongst many, or that's pastor's interpretation. No, I want you to receive this as the word of God, and so I'm going to try and explain it to you what it is. But but yes, um, that still doesn't mean that I'm always successful, or that people still won't have questions, especially like you said, where where questions are notoriously uh, more difficult. But but um, if it is, if in that moment, as you're uh, you know, often subconsciously running these things through your mind, being a Berean, if in fact what the pastor's saying, uh, insofar as you can tell, aligns with the Word of God, it is the Word of God, and you need to receive it as such, and you need um, to to receive it and praise God for it in the moment, and, and being applying it uh, to your mind and giving the attention to it as he's preaching. So during preaching, of the word, and then after the preaching of of the word, uh, you should be meditating upon it. Um, it would be good to to uh, write, use your notes if you've taken some, and meditate on some of those things throughout the week. Uh, meditation doesn't have to be hard or weird. It can it can be asking simple who, what, where, when, why, how questions about something the pastor said, and just reflecting on that and chewing on that upon your mind. How can this apply to this sphere of life, to my wife, to my kids, to work, whatever, asking these kinds of questions or ways in which one can meditate. Um, some in our congregation, and I think it's a good practice, use the sermons for family worship. So they're reflecting upon the sermons that were preached, um, and they're using that to fuel their family worship. So they don't have to wonder, what am I doing for family worship? Um, you know, you, you reflect upon the sermon that was that was preached. And, and, and when it's, the catechism speaks about conferring about it, you know, talk about it with other people. Talk about it uh, during the Lord's Day, um, between the services, after the service. Talk about it with your family. Talk about the things that the pastor said. Go talk to the pastor about it if you've got any questions uh, or, or whatever, and then strive to set the truth in our hearts and minds by continuing to reflect upon it and continuing to think about it and then we want to pray and strive uh, to implement the applications and the truth of the Word of God and the exhortations of the Word of God in our actual lives. Don't strive not to just let the Word go in one ear and out the other. Uh, strive to put into practice concretely what the pastor has just called you to from the Word of God. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what I got for before, during, and after. Yep, yep. They're very, very, very good. 
All right. Um, we'll come now to our mystery question, which isn't a mystery question because I, I gave it to you and you had a lot of thoughts in the uh, text message thread. And I just said, hey, chill out, man. Let's uh, let's save it for the podcast. All right. So 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 here we are. Mystery question for our listeners, not for you. In Acts chapter eight, after Saul has ravaged the church and uh, particularly the Hellenists have been scattered, Philip there is in Samaria and he's preaching the gospel and he runs into this uh, fellow named Simon the Magician. So not uh, not someone who practices sleight of hand, but someone who's engaged in demonic sorcery. And this man sees the power of the Holy Spirit working through Philip. And so he professes some um, some type of faith and uh, belief, but it comes out later that uh, that perhaps he didn't truly understand when he tries to buy the power of the Holy Spirit from uh, the apostles. So the question is, in Joe Smith's opinion, was Simon truly a believer or not? One question real quick. Are we yeah. asking the next three guests this question? Is this our mystery? Did you unilaterally decide this? I did not. I mean, I'm happy to do that if you want to. I know you've got a whole list. <laughs> I was of just questions. asking. I mean, it's. A, no, no, well, I guess. I guess time will tell, listener, if this is our sure. uh, reoccurring question. But but for now, <laughs> Mr. Joseph Smith was. Uh, yeah. do, you, do you think we'll be uh, in heaven with Simon? I do not. I d- I don't think so. Um, I think from the outset, his profession is questionable. He's more amazed by the power and the miracles and the signs than he is about forgiveness and mercy unto his soul. I think it's verified by him offering money so that he could have this power. Again, it just shows his focus is on this power and his desire to be able to wield this power, not his desire to be forgiven before the throne of Jesus Christ. Uh, Peter blasts him. Um, and, and reveals the truth about Simon, I think, by the inspiration, infallibly. Uh, just like Christ knew the hearts of men, so through the Apostle Peter, he's revealing uh, Simon's heart, that his heart was not right. Uh, he is not, he has not truly believed the gospel. And then in verse 24, when Peter calls him to pray for himself and to repent, he does not pray for himself. He has Peter to pray for him, and nor does he repent. He just says, pray that none of these things that you've said would happen to me. That's that's mere terror. That's that's mere remorse. That's mere fear, uh, and not fear in a good sense of fearing the Lord. So he doesn't do anything that Peter tells him to do uh, as far as repentance and prayer. And so I think, and, and then also... Um, Church history. Now I'm getting this from secondary sources. I haven't read Justin Martyr and Irenaeus myself on this, mm-hmm. but I think it's pretty well known that Justin Martyr and Irenaeus, so early church history, uh, state that um, uh, Simon the sorcerer uh, became an enemy of the church and and uh, what set himself against the church after what we see in Acts chapter eight. And some even say that that he was the founder or a founder mm-hmm. or a major contributor to early Gnosticism. And so that's yeah, not Ir- good. Irenaeus flat out says in his book against heresies that, that Simon was the father mm. of the Gnostic heresy. Well, sure. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so you know more on that th- th- than I, but um, so, I mean, there's that, there's that testimony from church history, which vindicates what, what we see, I think in, in acts is it uh, eight, is it 17 through 24, whatever's that section there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also just the fact that, I mean, his, his name has, in a sense, lived in infamy in church history 
simony, right? Mm -hmm. Like we have a name for what this dude does. He tries to to buy an office in the church, essentially, or sees sees religion as something to be profited from or turned into a business. And and this is a sin in the church that we see throughout church history. So, I mean, just his name uh, is not vindicated by church history. I think that confirms what I think is pretty clear from the passage. And, and we know from the parable of the sower that there are different manifestations of faith, two of those of which do not endure and I think Simon is one of those, the cares of this world, the lusts of the world and power choked out the word, caused it to become an unfruitful and dead faith. And thus he went out from us because he was never of us. Yeah, when you look at uh, Simon's belief, um, I think it was a true belief, but it was not a saving faith. You know, when you think about the the different elements of faith, knowledge, assent and trust, I think he certainly had knowledge and assent, um, but he did not have trust. He did not have a, he he was not resting and receiving Christ. So he had um, a demonic belief. You know, the demons believe that God is one good, right? As as James says, Um, considering church history, I I don't know if that's as um, concrete perhaps as as we would like it to be Uh, for instance john calvin disagrees with Irenaeus and justin martyr Um, in his commentary on on acts he interacts with them a little bit but he says something to the fact calvin does that Irenaeus says this but uh, it's so easily disproved for so many reasons i'm not even going to spend time talking about it and you know i was sitting there reading it calvin i i I, kind of wish you would (laughs) yeah um so you know church history at least i mean you've got the post-apostolic fathers like Arenatus and justice justin martyr and then one other fellow whose name i can't remember and then you've got the reformers like calvin um disagreeing so the the testimony from church history isn't definitive um and then you could look at Simon's response to Peter, you know, pray and, and repent uh, that the Lord will forgive you of these wicked things. Um, and Peter's or Simon's response, you know, pray that these things not will not be true of me. You can look at that, I guess, in one of two ways. And you, you kind of looked at it more from the, the negative perspective that uh, he was called to repent. He clearly did not. And, and he kind of answers in this like spiritually pious kind of deflecting language, you know, pray for me um, without actually repenting. You could look at that charitably, I suppose, and say that this man was so broken by his sin that uh, that he was requesting, you know, prayer. I, I don't know that I could say, I mean, you're, you're saying pretty definitively that he was not. I, I'm kind of of the opinion that he probably wasn't, but um, the scriptures don't really tell us one way or another. Um, so I'm, I'm going to maybe keep my mouth shut on whether he actually was or not because the scriptures don't tell us. But I think uh, you clearly articulated that uh, things don't look great for him um, based on yeah, the text say, and based on history. I'd say, yeah, highly unlikely. So does Calvin end up coming down and arguing that he was saved? No, I mean, Calvin, uh, I mean, my, my opinion is pretty much Calvin's opinion is basically where the scriptures are silent. We ought to remain silent. Um, you know, cause when, when you look at that text, that, that, in Acts eight, that's the question that everybody asks. You know, is is Simon was he a believer or not? Did he truly repent or not? Um, and Calvin says we don't know, so we can't we can't say. Sure, yeah, absolutely. We we can't be infallible judges of a man's heart, but simultaneously we will know them by their fruit. Uh, we're called 
to um, discern the spirits, uh, to uh, look at men's fruit, though uh, men like uh, Samson and Lot are certainly wonderful uh, warnings and qualifiers to those things. If it weren't for Hebrews 11 and 2 Peter 2, uh, we would probably have serious doubts about Lot and Samson as well. Mm -hmm. Unlike with Lot and Samson, there's nothing said positive about Simon. So, um, but certainly, like you said, uh, not infallible. I mean, uh, happy if he is in heaven, mm -hmm. uh, happy to see him one day. But I just think it's highly, highly unlikely, highly unlikely um, that he is not. Yeah, based all, on all, all signs point to the fact that he most likely wasn't. You know, if we're you know trying to interview this guy for communion in a session meeting, <laughs> I think we might say, yeah, just just uh, participate as an observer for now. Sure. Uh, <laughs> well, so we'll uh, we'll go ahead and wrap this thing up. There's one thing that you didn't say about um, how to prepare to listen to a sermon, particularly when it comes to the before section. Um, if you are ever traveling and you find yourself in Denver, Colorado, and you get to listen to uh, Joseph Smith worship with the, the congregation there, one of the things you need to do before the sermon is you need to use the bathroom because this man preaches for a long time. But if you do find yourself in Denver, uh, I trust that you will be blessed by um, Joseph and the, the session and the, the congregation there. They're wonderful people. Uh, our guest has been Joseph Smith, our future homiletics professor, maybe in 2024 or 2040. We'll see what happens. Who knows? Don't shake your head at me. Who knows? Uh, while we wait for our next episode, you can like and uh, share this episode, maybe on social media. You can rate and review us on iTunes or whatever podcast catcher you use. If you want to email us a question to ask uh, our guests, or perhaps you want to suggest we interview your pastor, you can email us at bluebanterpodcast at gmail.com, bluebanterpodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, whether you eat, drink, or banter, do all to the glory of God. Amen.